As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. It is a big day. Our last show of 2020. Can you believe it? Uh, yes, uh, as I mentioned on the last pod, I will be taking two weeks off over the holidays, so Christmas and New Year's week, and then we will be back feeling good and fighting fit for 2021. But as we close out the year, I just want to express my gratitude to you, dear listener, for sticking through uh, this year with me, which is just in all its craziness and heartbreak and hopefulness and ups and downs and in-betweens. Doing the pod has really been a great distraction, but also just a way to help me make sense of what's been happening in the world, in tech, with tech in the world. And really, it's just been a source of joy. I've really enjoyed doing it and having you tune in week in, week out. That's what it's all about. So thank you. And I just wanted to read out a couple reviews from listeners over the past few months to say, you know, thank you. So TMW51 says... Always enjoyable podcasts, often slightly irreverent, thank you, which we need more than ever these days. Not too much Silicon Valley inside speak, and Danny does a great job of setting the scene and keeping things lively. I'm slowly working my way through the back catalog. Give it a go if disruptive tech is your thing. TMW. Thank you. A plus on that one. Appreciate you. Uh, Marky677 said, learn so much about the stories behind big tech Guests are tremendous, Marky. I agree. The guests are tremendous. And we're going to get to a good one shortly. Um, I'll read one more. This is from Ramp It Up, 84. Insightful, no fluff, none of the arrogance you usually encounter with Silicon Valley, beach, slopes, etc. Thanks, Ramp It Up. We try to keep it fluff-free around these parts. Anyhow. Thank you, guys, again, for listening, for those reviews, the ratings. Please do keep those rolling in because it helps other people find the show. Let's make 2021 the biggest and baddest ever. Now, on to the show. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We always knew that if we accomplished what we set out to do, we would be wading into a a firestorm. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and this week, the finale is with a guest doing something that is very close to my heart. So Chris Best is the founder of Substack, which is a newsletter company that's shaking up the world of journalism and having itself a bit of a moment. Now we get into this a bit in the interview, but as you will surely know, my chosen industry is not in great shape. 
COVID has killed advertising as well as circulation for much of the industry. Uh, people are getting fired all over the place, and those publications that are left are just really being assailed on all sides. So web-only publishers have been criticized, or have long been criticized for prioritizing clickbaity stories that will draw eyeballs and thus generate revenue, even if those stories aren't, let's say, super high quality. Newspapers have found themselves right in the middle of the culture war. They're really trying to figure out how best to tell stories in a world that is deeply divided in which each side thinks the other is just crazy. So if you're seen as slanted as one way, you know, to one side or the other, you just get completely bashed by the other side. And especially out here in Silicon Valley, there's a real bitterness that has risen up against what we'll call traditional or legacy media and tech journalism in particular. And what this really boils down to is a question of incentives. So the New York Times, for example, has made a huge push for subscribers. And the argument goes that they will only tell stories in ways that its left-leaning readers want to hear, even if it comes at the cost of having a more honest or balanced or nuanced conversation. Because above all, in this new world where advertising has been completely obliterated again, you have to keep your readers, or in this, through this lens, your customers, happy. And that is a critique anyway, and it can be applied to any number of big publishers on the left or the right. That is the argument. And in the middle of all of that is Substack, which is a three-year-old company that has a very simple model. Any writer can use its software to set up a newsletter, and ideally, one they can charge for. The idea is being that, say, I, for example, I quit the Times, and I set up a Substack, and I convinced 10,000 people to pay 10 bucks a month to read my musings. They would, hopefully, very happily do so. And I would be happy because I'd be making a million dollars a year through this direct relationship with the people who read me. And I would, theoretically, not be beholden to any larger incentives from a mothership which no longer exists and I no longer operate under. And for some, that is exactly what is happening, which is why Substack is having this moment, because a lot of big-name journalists are leaving, often quite noisily from their big publications, to set up a new Substack outpost. But in all of this gets really to this more fundamental question of the quality of the conversation online. What you read, and what are all the forces, the algorithmic forces, that propel story X to the point that it ends up in your feed and you click on it. And really asking the question, is there a better way for this whole system to work? And that is what Substack is trying to do. This is their version of that better model. Anyhow, that is a long-winded intro, but what the hell. It's my last one of a very long year. So with that, I'm going to stop talking and now hand you over to my conversation with Chris Best, the co-founder of Substack. Enjoy. I've been following you guys for for a while, as I feel like most journalists have. And I'd love to just start, if we could go back to 2017, and kind of how this got started, and then we can kind of come up to present day and then kind of go from there. Uh, it was it was a different time back then. People <laughs> could go outside. 
I, at the start of 2017, I had left Kick, which is a previous company that I uh, was a co-founder. I was like the technical co-founder. We made a messaging app. I was there for eight years. It was a it was a wild ride, and I was sort of taking some time off. I was considering what I wanted to do next. I was spending time with friends and family. Uh, all those things that you sometimes don't get as much time as you'd like to do if you're starting a company. And I've always been an avid reader. And one of the things I had in my mind is like, I'd like to write something. I think writing, you know, what you read really matters. It isn't just entertainment, but it shapes like who you are and how yeah. you see the world. And so great writing is extremely valuable. And I always thought it'd be something that I'd like to sort of try my hand at. And I started writing what was sort of an essay or a blog post or something uh, expressing my concern and frustration with sort of the state of the internet media ecosystem. Basically, you know, not a terribly original thesis, but I was like, hey, I think that having all of these social media feeds that are optimized for engagement is making the wrong things succeed. So like, you know, if you're if you're trying to make a Twitter feed as addictive as possible and you optimize for the things that pull people in the most, the things that end up winning are not necessarily the things you'd want to optimize for if you started from first principles. And I think it's bad for society because it kind of deranges our politics and yeah. all this stuff, but it's also just frustrating on an individual level. Like I have this thing where I'm like, I have this love hate relationship with my Twitter feed where I kind of, you know, yes. I feel like I, I want it to be connected to the world and I'm definitely addicted to it, but I sort of, it feels like sort of smoking for my brain. Like it's not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not totally at peace with this, with this habit that I have. Well, that's the whole core of the, of that kind of unspoken bargain, isn't it? is that the kind of less at peace you are, the more you are drawn to it. Yeah, exactly. Like it's optimizing for something that is fundamentally like against my interests. And I find it very compelling, but it's not the thing that I would necessarily choose if I took a step back and thought, what do I want in my life? And how do I want to arrange my my worldview? And how do I decide what to read and who to trust? So I'm writing an essay complaining about this stuff. I sent it to my friend Hamish, who is who is actually a writer, to be like, "Hey, I'm writing this. What do you think about this?" And you know, he's like, "Hey, this isn't this isn't terribly original. You're not the first person to bemoan the state of social media." I hate to break it to you, <laughs> um, but you know, there's some this is an interesting topic, and maybe a good good way into it is how could this even be different, right? Like, given that the internet happened the way that it happened, and it you know we went through this period where it's you know this is just how things developed how could this change? And we started arguing about that and we were sort of considered, you know, Hey, could you fix the social media feed algorithms to make this better? And we kind of concluded that you, you couldn't really, because the reason they are the way they are stems from the underlying business model, right? It's not like Facebook is sitting there tinting their fingers and saying, how can we derange people? It's just, they're doing their best to make their business work. And the unintended consequences of that mm -hmm. are quite dire. And so the, the, the conclusion we came to is if you want to fix this, you have to have different laws of physics. You have to have a different business model entirely from sort of the ad supported engagement maximizing social media feed. You have to have something that's totally, you're optimizing for something else. And at the same time, you know, we started talking about how when the internet came along, it was this great revolutionary technology. You can, you know, distribute your writing globally and instantly for free. There's more good stuff to read than ever, et cetera, et cetera. But it also smashed the existing business models for written culture, right? Like Craigslist killed the classifieds, Facebook and Google took over the advertising industry. And 
we had this idea. We we're like, what if people, what if as a writer, you could just start your own thing, talk to people directly and have them pay for it directly? Was the idea kind of back to blogs, but pay for it this time? It was a little bit of that. I mean, we sort of, the kernel of the idea was about newsletters because we thought we figured that newsletters were actually the natural inheritor of blogs. I have this theory that what happened was like blogs worked because people used to browse the internet. And then as soon as we all switched to mobile, people stopped browsing the internet and you needed to be like a notification in one of the squares on my home screen. And it just so happened that email was the last app that virtually everybody has and which isn't controlled by one of these engagement maximizing algorithms. And so the newsletter kind of inherited the best part of the blog where you sort of have loyal readership that comes back and back. You feel like you have this direct connection. And the other piece of blogging that we think could be improved was just there's never a great way to make money. I hope that's not a contentious That is not That is not contentious at all, no. But it's funny, I was just listening to you uh, describing ad-driven engagement maximizing models pre-internet that would describe a newspaper. Totally. The the shape of the thing was different back then, right? So if you had a newspaper, because of the distribution constraints and the way that newspaper or even radio or some other things work, you sort of had this local quasi-monopoly on an audience, right? So you were the you were the newspaper for this area. And your goal was kind of be broadly inoffensive to everybody in that area so that you could maximize your reach within the range of your paper delivery people or something. Yeah. And so the incentives kind of lined up in such a way that you made things kind of like broad based and milk toast and wanted to sort of appeal to everybody all the time, which had its own drawbacks, mm. um, but didn't sort of didn't incentivize the same sort of hyper polarizing stuff that you get when everybody's seeing something totally different that's designed just for them to like rile yeah. them up to the max. Um, and we'll get back to like the actual kind of mechanics of the founding of the company. But did you have a sense then in 2017 that you would be kind of wading into what has become kind of a front in the culture war? Because you do have a lot of, especially in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of people who are very pissed off at, let's call it legacy media. And they think the incentives are wrong. And I've talked to, you know, people who are like, oh, you know, everybody's really pushing for subscriptions now, like the New York Times, etc. That's just creating this actual loop where you're just preaching to the choir that you are attracting. Thus, you know, the incentive for truth, objectivity, etc. is less. In other words, we're just kind of creating silos in a different way. There just feels like there's a really big pushback with against legacy media. And you guys are kind of a part of that as you've had people like Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Greenwald, and others kind of be like, you know what? F the old system. I'm going off and do this on my own because I can't work within the strictures of, you know, the kind of the traditional setup. I would say we always knew that if we accomplish what we set out to do, we would be wading into a, a firestorm. A big piece of why this was motivating was we felt like the existing media landscape and not just like legacy media, but just the the whole incentive structure created by the social media feeds that that have us all addicted was kind of creating this needless melee. And in order to create something new and better than that, we were gonna have to to challenge it effectively. And that people wouldn't always be <laughs> wouldn't always be completely delighted by that. I personally find that the current sort of tech versus legacy media 
thing doesn't really resonate with me that much. I find it a little bit exhausting. Everybody sort of has points, but it, it, it feels to me like one of these dumb fights we have on Twitter, to be frank. Yeah, I agree. That is kind of, speaking of incentive structures, that is Twitter's kind of reason for being, it feels like, is dumb Twitter fights. You know, you speak to people out here and there's just real kind of disgust with, you know, the New York Times or whatever being like, oh, they're just shitting on us tech guys from a great height and this is not fair and it's not objective and this is all about their messed up incentive structures to try to kind of you know feed a narrative that they are themselves are creating but it's just really it's a really interesting time in the media industry not least because you know i work for legacy media company and our company in the is in the midst right now of like kind of crunching operations a bit where putting two different papers on the same floor and it's like the melting of an iceberg, you know, since I've been in the industry, which is now almost 20 years of just like a, a steady drip drip of resources away from this thing, which to go back where you started is quite important not to kind of toot my own horn as a journalist, but it is important. Absolutely. So going back to 2017, 2018, what was the mission and how'd you actually, how'd you raise your first money and kind of how did you get off the ground? Yeah, so I was I was talking to Hamish about this essay. We sort of had this idea that, hey, what if we just made it really simple for a writer to go independent, right? Mm -hmm. Start a blog, start an email newsletter, people subscribe directly, charge money directly. And that's kind of it. And we, we were like, that, there's no way it could be that simple, right? Like it sounds too simple to work. And yet I'm kind of a product nerd. I come, I have like an engineering background. I sort of think about these things from a, you know, building a product perspective. And Hamish is a, is a writer and thinks about things totally differently and really empathizes with, he's sort of had all of the jobs. He's been a freelancer. He's worked at publications. He's written a book. He's done all this stuff. And we just couldn't talk ourselves out of it being a good idea. Like I was like, I think this would work as a product. And he's like, I think writers would really like this. And something that I'm sort of sensitive to is I think of it as Silicon Valley hubris, where you sort of come in and say, I'm from tech and I'll, I'm here to tell you how your thing should run. Yeah. You come in or come in wearing a cape saying, I'm going to save the media. Yeah. And, and we, we del very deliberately never say that. <laughs> don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't, don't count that as our, as sort of the main thing we're doing. But the fact that we both couldn't talk ourselves out of it, convinced us that there must be something there. And we started building uh, an early version that was just exactly that. It's like, hey, you have your email list, you can publish to the web, you can publish to email, you can, you can take money from subscriptions. Hamish talked to a friend of his, Bill Bishop, who was running an email newsletter about China for a global sort of government and business audience that's just like, hey, what the heck is going on with China? He'd lived there for a number of years and sort of knew it. And he'd been doing this thing for free for years and had this loyal audience of people who loved it and relied on it and found it very useful. And he'd been intending to do this. He was like, Hey, mm. I should charge for this. It's really good. But he couldn't sort of fiddle around with the tech to pull it all together. And we we're like, this is exactly the person we imagined yeah. might be out there and might be our ideal first customer. Um, and so we built the original version essentially for him and essentially helped him launch the paid version of the cynicism newsletter and at the same time, we applied to Y Combinator, which is an accelerator here in the Valley. We got an interview and we were sort of like, we're making no money. And then in between the couple days between the getting the interview and going to the interview, Bill launched and made a 
a ton of money on his first day. Oh, wow. And so we got to the interview and they're like, it says here you make no money. We're like, actually, that's changed in the past three days. Right. So that time he worked out pretty well. And we sort of had this debate as we were considering whether we would, you know, I, I was living in Kitchener, Ontario at the time, which is near Toronto. And where was Hamish? Hamish was in San Francisco. Okay. We had this debate, you know, do we think this is, you know, a cool technology for writers that, you know, might be a good small business that will, you know, help some people out and be a good modest thing? Or mm. or do we think that it has the potential to be something transformative? And because we're hyping each other up and being foolish optimists, we sort of <laughs> got to the point where we're like, hey, we, we think this does... There's something here. There's something yeah. here that's more than a cool email tool. This is something that has the potential to rewrite the rules for how culture on the internet works and gets paid for in a very good way. And that's a cause that we would be sort of excited to dedicate ourselves to. And we talked uh, my good friend, Jiraj Sethi, into joining as a co-founder. He's the best engineer that I know. And he sort of came down and we went to did the YC thing and did a launch more publicly and recruited some more people to join and made it so that anybody could start a Substack. Uh, we raised a, a seed round coming out of YC and have just been plugging away since then. Who are your seed uh, funders? Um, there were a bunch of great ones. A couple notable ones are Emmett Shear, who's uh, one of the founders of Twitch. Mm -hmm. Justin Waldron, who's a co-founder of Zynga, and a couple other uh, really great people. Reed Hoffman, is he in the mix? Because I know that he's kind of quite concerned about the health of society and democracy in particular. This seems like it would be right up his alley. I haven't talked to him. Oh, well, there you go. That's for your next round. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> You've also raised some money from Andreessen. Yeah, we raised a Series A last summer, uh, so a year and a half ago. And so how many people are on it? How many writers have a Substack now? Um, what are my stats? I don't know if we share the number of writers. The good numbers I have for you are there's over 250,000 paid subscribers and the top 10 publishers are collectively earning more than 10 million bucks a year. The top 10 are earning more than 10 million total. Yeah. See, to a journalist, that sounds wildly kind of, that just sounds not possible, which is interesting. But if you start to do the math, right? You're like, okay, if I'm going to charge 100 bucks a year, let's say, yeah. how many subscribers does it take for me to get to a million bucks a year, right? You need 10,000 people paying. It's not that unbelievable a number. And that's part of why this model, although it's so simple, is so powerful. Instead of having to get, you know, tens of millions of people to like just barely click on a thing, you have to make something that's deeply valuable to a few thousand people and it becomes viable. Right. And then once you have something that a thousand people like, it's actually not that hard to make it something that 10,000 people like and that, you know, yeah. beyond. And so somebody like Andrew Sullivan, who's has, you know, has been at this for, as Brits say, donkey's years, he has a following. Yeah. And he was actually, when we wrote our sort of founding manifesto, we referenced the dish as one of our proof points that this kind of thing could work. Yeah. And so no, him exactly. coming to Substack was sort of full circle. Right. And so he is him starting it, I imagine, is is fairly seamless and he can start making a lot of money pretty quickly. But if I'm Joe Blow, 24-year-old journalist kind of trying to make my name, does this work? In other words, kid, do you have to kind of establish yourself elsewhere and then come here? Or do you have cases where people are like, you know what, I'm going to actually build my whole thing via Substack? Yeah. So it's certainly, I mean, it's not the case that literally anybody can just start a Substack and instantly make a million dollars, right? That would, that would be 
if I was telling you that, I think you should be wildly skeptical. Yeah. However, it is much more the case that people can start on Substack from either relative obscurity or from not being a well-known writer and achieve high levels of success. And I think people think that everybody that's successful on Substack is well-known yeah. because all of the people that they've heard of that are on Substack are well-known yeah. because they've heard of the well-known people. But a lot of our top writers are people who weren't even necessarily professional writers before starting on Substack. We have you know people that were in the bankruptcy and restructuring industry that were frustrated by the level of coverage and started their own thing and then you know, sold it to all the people that, that were like yeah. them that wanted it. Heather Cox Richardson is a history professor who started writing a thing called Letters from an American on Facebook out of sort of frustration and a, a sense of wanting to distill the news of the day for people that wanted to stay up to date but not get completely deranged <laughs> through the past yeah. year. Started a free email list uh, and is now the top the top individual writer on Substack. In terms of subscribers or in terms of income? Income. Wow. And so throwing it forward, say, I don't know, five years, if everything went swimmingly, what does the world look like for Substack? And I'm thinking now about, I don't know if you've met, spent any time in Britain, but in the UK, certainly traditionally, perhaps a bit less so nowadays, but people really define themselves in a way by what newspaper they read. Like, oh, I'm a Guardian reader. or So if you, someone says they read The Guardian, that means something about who they are and what they believe. Versus if they read The Telegraph or The Daily Mail or whatever it may be. It's a really kind of defining thing. And I'm just wondering, do you see that become like, oh, yeah, I subscribe to this person's or that person's newsletter. That becomes a kind of a defining cultural thing. I think that can definitely be part of it. You know, people subscribe to a writer because they trust them, because they have grown to value their point of view by reading them over time and thinking, this is somebody who I want in my life and help shaping how I think. And people will, you know, people will look for, for points of view that are that are interesting to them. One thing that gives me a lot of courage is that I sometimes look at the comments after somebody announces their Substack of, of people who have subscribed and sort of saying why they're there. And very often I'll see people who say things like, I really don't agree with you and I find you irritating sometimes, but I think you have a really interesting point of view and I I trust that you're coming at it from a good place and it's worth sort of having mm. you having you in my mind. So I think you can I think you will get people that have a distinct point of view and who are, you know, relatively open about that and that might be a very biased place or it might be an attempt to seek the truth or or whatever their their worldview is, at least you can sort of Choose for yourself who to, who to trust and who to read. To enjoy more of the latest news from Silicon Valley, get a subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. That is right, free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley so that they know I sent you. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How is the dynamic, though, different than, say, going back to, say, the Facebook news feed and the problem around silos and people kind of only being exposed to point of view taking into account what you just said about that you know some of those comments presumably if you're paying whatever five ten bucks a month to read somebody it's because you agree with them and you want to read more about that and it kind of redoubles your own beliefs or belief system whatever it may be in other words is there not a danger here of we're just kind of hardening our silos because you can kind of just go here okay these are my two or three sub stacks this is my worldview and i can kind of shut everything else out I think people can choose to do that. And to some extent, that ship has sailed. Like the the alternative to that is a world where I'm sort of forced to read things that I don't like. Um, and just the state of technology is, I think that that's no longer there. I do think that it's the fact that I can choose, I'm choosing who to trust and who to read. It, people won't only subscribe to people they agree with is basically sort of empirically my my answer to that. Sometimes they will. They, they will subscribe to people who they agree with, but sometimes they will subscribe to people who they disagree with or who they don't agree with completely, who have a view that maybe some of the, some of the things they think are in agreement and some of them are mm. different and they're challenged sometimes and you know affirmed other times. I think people, when they make the choice of who to subscribe to kind of as their best selves, as they're sitting back on a Sunday afternoon thinking, you know, what do I want more of in my life? They'll tend to make good choices, not necessarily the perfect choices and not necessarily, you know, what I would choose for them to read, but that's not really what we see our role as. It's like, I want you to choose what to read as your best self and by your own lights, what you think is going to make your life better. And if I make you able to do that in the best way possible, I think we have succeeded as a company contrast that with your social media feeds where you're still choosing what to read, right? You choose to open Facebook, you choose what to click on, but you're making that decision kind of as your worst self. You're going through one more scroll uh, before you fall asleep and you're clicking on the thing that kind of jumps out at you at the moment. Mm -hmm. I sort of think of it at, uh, by analogy with if I was choosing what to eat, if I had a giant glass bowl of candy that I carried with me everywhere and every time I felt like a candy, I took a candy and ate it. I'm still choosing that. It's still compelling. I still like the candy. But if I took a step back and thought, how am I going to feed myself? That's not what I would do <laughs> at all. Right. And neither would I say I'm going to have a diet consisting of you know unseasoned vegetables to be sort of maximally healthy. <laughs> I'm going to set up something that's like you know some combination of yeah. delicious and healthy. But the, the key is to sort of make that choice for yourself, but in the best way possible. Well, that's why I think it'll be really interesting. And perhaps you have more, me being cynical, I think you have more faith in people than I do. Because <laughs> I do think, I'm not sure if people will kind of come to this, as you say, as their best self and be like, you know what, I'm going to get a balance of views so then I can digest it on my own. I feel like a lot of people, 
where we are in the world right now, find what they believe and use it as a cudgel to beat down other people who don't agree with them. I guess what'll be interesting to see as you guys grow is how much of that is the algorithm, like force feeding these things into your you know view, and how much of it is just human nature that if you were truly able to just choose that you would do something different. Listen, it's it's absolutely human nature. And that's why the algorithm works. The algorithm's not sitting here saying, I'm going to put people into bubbles and make them mad. The algorithm is sitting there saying, I'm just going to do whatever engages people the most. And it's just an emergent property because of how humans are that driving people crazy is the, is the most effective way to do that. And I don't think that the Substack model or any model is going to fix that, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's something we necessarily want to fix. We're, we're not out here to change human nature. I think the thing that is particularly bad about a lot of our discourse is the super efficient market in engagement. <laughs> and because yeah. that's the most compelling thing, means that that crowds out everything else. Yeah. I often feel like my feeds on social media, it's not just that there's people that are shouting to their fan base to get the other team. It's that it's like, that's the only thing that's happening. And any conversation sort of immediately devolves into that at the earliest possible opportunity and we end up having the dumbest possible version of every argument, which again is my is my complaint about the tech versus media discourse. And Substack doesn't mean that that will never happen. It doesn't mean that I'll pay for some writer who I like because they dunk on the people that I don't like. It just means that other things are also possible. And if you are someone that wants to come out and say, hey, I'm not here to wage the culture war. I'm here to explore the possible space of ideas. And if you're somebody that wants that, come subscribe, that that can also exist. And I think that makes all the difference. Right. How do you deal with this if I'm, say, an investigative journalist? Because when you start really digging through stuff and you start giving people, you know, these are my, the questions I have for you, we are publishing soon, then the legal letters come and it becomes the whole morass. And I know from working at a big publisher, you know, every story that I write is legaled by Absolutely. a trained media lawyer. And like when those letters come in, they deal with it and they help me navigate through that and all that kind of stuff. Does what you're doing actually lend itself to that kind of deep reporting or is this, is it more kind of like a salon for commentary and, and more that kind of side of journalism? The way we see it is that we don't have to immediately be the perfect model for everything in order to, to be good and make yeah. a, a positive difference in the world. I'm not trying to make the claim that Substack is the best form for, for all journalism right away and we don't mm -hmm. need anything else. I certainly don't, don't believe that. I do think it is a, a very powerful model for a lot of journalism and it is something we're actively seeking to advance. So on the, you know, the legal question, for instance, our goal has always been give writers everything you need to go independent. And part of that is a software stack that mm -hmm. is really easy to use and lets you own your audience and get paid directly by subscribers. But we're also trying to bit by bit figure out all of the other pieces of that. So we started an early pilot program called Substack Defender because we had exactly the thing you're describing. We had a couple of 
local journalists. Local journalism is a really powerful thing for Substack. I think if we can, mm, if we can get all for the, sure. the pieces it's, uh, it's also, we're desperately in need of it. This is sort of the thing, right? It's like the people still want it and yet it doesn't, it's like not working. There's this market failure. But one of the things about local journalism is there's so little local journalism left that if you're a like a local politician or business person, you might have one scrappy reporter covering you. And so you often feel like, hey, if I can shut that one person up, yeah. I actually might not have to face scrutiny. For sure. And so we had a couple of local journalists telling us basically they were getting these bogus legal letters, mm. right? Like they were doing very well supported <laughs> reporting yeah. and somebody, they're getting the scary letter from a law firm and didn't like, what do I do? I don't have a legal team. And frankly, a lot of those people, even if they were at you know, local newspapers wouldn't necessarily have the great the greatest of resources. So we started this thing called Substack Defender, where we were kind of like, hey, we can help connect you with a lawyer who specializes in this. We can, you know, help you deal with if you get one of these bogus legal threats. We can help you defend it vigorously, hopefully very publicly, so that we can actually make it feel like there's some consequence to making bogus legal threats against journalists and yeah. uh, help a climate of free speech for anybody. But also we you know, also we help with, you know, pre-publication review for things that you think might be contentious, aid a little bit with that. And over time, our hope is that we can grow programs like this so that all of the barriers, if you're somebody who does want to be an independent journalist, an independent writer, all of the reasons now why that's hard, we can make it as easy as possible. Does that include some kind of editing function as well because i know that like of course everything i write is brilliant and perfect right but then an editor looks at it as like this makes no sense cut this do this flip this upside down and it ends up being better um, most of the time there's a real value there especially for if you're talking about being a product company like the end product is better totally generally yeah, and, and contrary to popular belief, we're not anti-editor at all. We think that's great, and we we are experimenting with how could we help connect people with you know editing services for exactly that reason. What does that look like, though, or do you not know yet? It's in such an early stage, but it it probably looks like hey, I'm you know I'm going independent. I'm starting my own independent media company, yeah. and I want to basically hire a freelance editor to help me or or have be connected to someone that's an editor. So you would have like a I don't know like a list of people that they could kind of access or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, that, that's sort of the direction we're thinking. It's in quite early stages. Right. And how do you deal with the idea of content moderation, especially people who are pushing the envelope? And in America, particularly, you know, very litigious. And in the in the UK, I don't know how if you have a lot of people working in the UK, but the libel laws there are serious. And, you know, there's a lot of cases that are brought over lots of stuff with, with merit, without, and otherwise. How are you thinking about addressing that? Or is that kind of not on the front burner? Yeah, I mean, it, it is something we think about. You know, we believe quite strongly in the freedom of the press and in our mission of helping writers go independent. Like we kind of want to to be as much of a bulwark for that as possible. One of the great things about the Substack model is unlike on social media where you're kind of, the algorithm kind of is actually acting as an editor and deciding yeah. the things you see and kind of like presenting things to you that might make you upset because they're, you know, things that you don't want to see. And sometimes like you subscribe to a writer and if you don't like the things that they're writing, you have a really compelling remedy, which is just unsubscribe and stop yeah. reading it. And because it's based on trusting people and you really do get to choose who you trust, a lot of the worst harms um, that you see from bad things spreading on social media, you know, the model helps defend against. Right. 
And because our target is independent writers, you know, we want to have a very broad and open platform that allows for a, a wide range of views, many of which we, we don't agree with at all, but we think that it's healthy. We think that that's not just healthy, but necessary for a thriving discourse and a thriving democracy. You know, that said, we're not, you know, we, we do have a content policy. There are a, a tightly construed set of things that are at the far extremes that are not allowed on the platform. Some of them are legal requirements. Some of them are practical requirements. Mm. I mean, for, for one thing, we crack down mercilessly on anybody that's spamming because both for sort of ethical and practical reasons. Like it's just, we can't have it, yeah. but you know, you can't do porn and stuff. So you can't, there's a, there's a, there's a set of things, but broadly we want to create an ecosystem that broadens the set of voices that you can find. Well, it's funny just thinking about like this idea that like you're experimenting with bringing in some editorial, bringing in some legal, and it feels like you're almost in a way, when you think about how a newspaper is set up, you're kind of coming at it from like the bottom up. Yeah. People sometimes ask like, hey, if you're helping people with this, aren't you a publisher? And the, the truth is the exact opposite. We're giving you everything you need mm. so that you don't need a publisher. You can become a publisher. If you don't want to go work at a newspaper, you shouldn't be prevented from going independent just because you can't figure out what lawyer to talk to or just because yeah. you don't know how to buy healthcare on your own or any of that stuff. Like We want to arm writers with all of the tools they need to go independent and not need to be part of a publisher if they don't want to or if one isn't available. And have you had any incoming from newspaper publishers who are like, hey, you're kind of trying to kind of steal our lunch money a little bit or we view you as a threat or is that just not, maybe you're not seen as that yet? I don't think so yet. I think that people still underestimate us, which I, which I cherish and will want to preserve <laughs> as long as possible. And how do you guys make money? So publishing on Substack is totally free for any size. We want you to come and bring your audience and you shouldn't have to pay to reach people that love your work. And once you start charging, we just take a cut. We take 10% of subscriptions. The beautiful thing about that is that we don't make any money until you make money and we are directly invested in your success. Do you hold people's hands at all? Because, you know, someone can be a great writer, but just... And I think it's probably the rule rather than the exception. Great writer, terrible business person. Yes. Yes. Like, Chronically <laughs> allergic to self-promotion. will go on a podcast and neglect to mention the URL of their thing they do. Correct. Yeah. No, it's we kind of approach that from two angles. One is that we work directly with some of the writers who we sort of manually recruit, especially in the early days. Like the only reason people would come to Substack is because we would talk to them and convince them that what we were doing was worthwhile. And we'd sort of have a relationship and help, you know, help sort of like personally walk them through this stuff and mm. try to incept the idea of doing some of the things that would help their business. But then more importantly, we take the things we learn from that and build them into the product in such a way that it's kind of the most natural way to use it is the way that will end up being successful. And the feedback that you get, you know, it shows you the right things that you need to know to make the decisions that are going to help your business. So it's a lot of that sort of accrued wisdom is being built into the product. And have you talked to um, Jack Conti or any of the guys at Patreon? Because this feels like Patreon for journalists in a way. I had him on the podcast about a year and a half ago and like, you know, they've made this business, which is, you know, basically asking people to volunteer to pay for something that they don't necessarily have to do. This is a bit different in that it is like, you know, at some point, somebody like made to say, if you want to keep doing this, you have to subscribe. So it's not totally voluntary, but just this whole movement around media has been free on the internet for 20 
some years and there's been this slow kind of like actually you have to pay for this and i'm just wondering how where along that kind of continue you see it in terms of like the resistance to that or the willingness for people to be like you know what the internet is a dumpster fire i'm willing to pay for two or three things that actually i really trust i think there's a massive sea change that's underway and patreon was an early foray into that and I expect that the way that we pay for things on the internet will be completely upended by, um, by this model of directly subscribing to people that you trust. The way that I kind of model it in my head is that the early days of the internet was kind of an attention land grab. Mm. Like people used to get bored. Like you would have this problem where you're at home and you're like, I don't know what to do. I'm bored. This is uncomfortable. And so there was this big need to just have things to kind of fill your attention. Yes. And the early days of the internet and especially and, and continuing into mobile, it was just grabbing all of that, right? Every second of the day where you could possibly be bored, there's now something to do. We've talked that we've talked often on this podcast about this concept of like the death of boredom and how actually quite destructive that is. Yeah. And it's, you know, it has these bad side effects, but it also yeah. just has this this practical mechanic where now... I don't have any spare attention. Every possible second of my attention is used up. And so the bargain of like, hey, I'll give you something for free to spend your attention on isn't compelling at the margins. You have mm. to like make something even more engaging to steal yeah. my attention. But but me as a rational actor, if I can use my my last scarce resource now is my attention. Mm-hmm. And if I can spend money to use it more wisely, it's a really good bargain. Do you anticipate expanding what you offer or is this really all about the written word? In other words, are you looking at podcasts or photography or video? You know, how how wide is the kind of the net in terms of what people can produce and charge for it? We are very focused on writers. And one of the interesting effects of that is writers want to create in other media types. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of writers want to start a podcast, unsurprisingly. And so we do have a a podcast beta where you can basically have a podcast that lives alongside your your newsletter that works the same way. You can do paid episodes. You can email out the episodes to people that add it to their podcast player, all that stuff. And I think that that is a natural uh, area of growth for us, building into other media types where this model works just as well, um, starting with the writers who are already asking us, hey, I wish I could do a podcast. Hey, I wish I could do a video lecture. Hey, I wish I could use these other media types. It's a totally natural place for us to expand. Just thinking about the the mechanics of this, one, how many people are actually charging? Or like what percentage of people on Substack are actually charging? Or, you know, because I imagine a lot of them do the freemium, you know, where we offer this for free and then eventually we start charging. One key mechanic on Substack is even once you start charging, even once you have a paid membership tier, you can continue to choose with each piece you publish is this going to be paywalled? Is this going to be for subscribers only? Or is this going to be public? And one of the counterintuitive pieces of advice that we give to people is you should take a lot of your best and especially your most accessible stuff and make it public, make it free for everybody, which, you know, writers love actually, because a a lot of writers just want actually in their heart of hearts, want to reach the largest audience possible and just have a way to make money. But also from a marketing perspective, it becomes your, your top of funnel, right? The reason that people discover you and find out that you're a voice that they like in their life enough to pay for it is because they read your writing and they get to know you and they feel like, yes, this is worth it. It's worth sort of knowing that. I don't have the exact percentage of people that are paying, but we think of it as kind of like a, as a journey, right? Like you start often for free, you're kind of fiddling around with it. You start publishing. If you start to get good feedback, you continue. At some point you reach a size where 
we can legitimately come to you and say, hey, if you started charging, you would probably make a lot of money. And, you know, we have a pretty good conversion rate with that with that story. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask is like, you know, how actively involved in that kind of business end of things are you with being like, hey, nudge, nudge, you should start thinking about doing this. Because obviously, as you say, your incentives are totally aligned in that sense. Yeah. And we've, we've gone to great lengths to try to make sure that our incentives are aligned. That's sort of my belief in how you make a business that actually accomplishes good. It's not go against your incentives to do good things. It's yeah. set yourself up in such a way that you have incentives that align with doing good things. As we do with so many other things, we do this manually. We spend a lot of time talking to writers and helping them figure out hearing what they have to say and helping them figure out how to succeed. And then we try to take what we learn from that and build it into the product in such a way that over time, you can start on Substack and go from, you know, maybe I should try this newsletter thing to I'm making this fabulous amount of money without ever having to talk to anybody. Right. Is there a model that works best in terms of, because like, I'm just thinking like, I've worked at daily newspapers, nine, I work for a Sunday newspaper, newsletters, good ones, it just looks like a grind. Like you are putting in crazy hours. I mean, the payoff potentially is much greater than if you are working for somebody else who's capturing the value of that. But just wondering, like, is it, are most people publishing every day? Is it every week? Is it twice a month? I mean, what's the, the cadence? Yeah, I mean, it's it's real work, no question. And the cadence at which people publish varies quite highly. You know, probably a couple times a month is about the least you'd want to do if you're trying to make a full-time go of it. Some people do publish every day. And I just, I'm, I'm with you. I'm amazed that people can marshal that much great writing every day. Sometimes I just, I, I sit in awe and think how long it takes me to attempt to write something. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm never even finished that essay. I've been you said you haven't finished procrastinating it. this whole time by <laughs> starting a company instead. And we definitely notice a real qualitative difference when somebody is able to say, "Hey, I'm making enough from this that I can make this my my main thing." Mm. It really helps. Being able to put that level of focus into it makes a qualitative difference in kind of the quality and quantity of what you can do, which is part of what's in it for readers to pay. Yeah. Like the breakdown of this is my side hustle to this is my thing. Is it 50-50? Is it 25-75? Or- I mean, we, it depends on how you slice it. We have, every, we have people that are sort of all the way along the spectrum from I haven't even started charging to I'm making very, very large sums of money. And it's, you know, it, it changes over time. Right. Lastly, what was your worst day of work? What was my worst day at work? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to answer that. <laughs> I know exactly which day it is, but oh, I don't do. want to talk about it. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, come on. People love these stories. You know, there's like, we're out here and it's kind of like the myth factory out here. of Just like the overnight success that was 10 years in the making type of thing. People like to hear how the sausage actually gets made and when, you know, the less glamorous parts of it. I don't know if I should tell the story, but I'll tell it. Um, we had at some point to do an update to our terms of service or our privacy policy or one of these sort of legal things where yeah. you're, you know, you're supposed to notify people and, you know, the lawyer said, Hey, you really should like email everybody as you're making this change. Like that's the right sort yeah. of legal thing to do. And we are like, we've never, we've never emailed everybody before. <laughs> that's crazy. Like we don't even have a system to do this. So we hurriedly put together the system to email everybody to let them know about this thing. And as we started to run it, a early bunch of the batches went out to this privacy policy update that had up to like a couple hundred other people receiving it CC'd instead of BCC'd because of a quirk of the system. I see. And we killed the thing and like immediately went to fix it. 
but it was just the most, you know, you never want to do that. It felt awful. So you were updating a privacy policy and in so doing exposed people's emails it was to super each other. painful. And like, <laughs> I was like, I was one of the early users. So I got the email and there was people in this like email thread now that started like talking to each other and calling it their Substack pod and like pitching their startups to each other. Right. Just like, Oh my God, this is the worst. We, that was just, Oh, that was, that was really tough. Well, that's not so bad. I've had people talk about like getting fired and crying about, I mean, you know, that's on the spectrum for whatever it's worth. That's pretty tame. That's fair. Well, thank you. I feel better now. <laughs> um, well, look, it's fascinating. I'll, I'll be watching your guys' um, development with interest. You guys have ended up doing this at an interesting time, especially out here when there's so there's such kind of venom toward the media. And it feels like whether you guys like it or not, you have been drawn into like into the middle of yeah. that fight. This is why we started the company. We felt that this is what was happening and we felt that it was something that we could help provide a better alternative to. When you say you felt this was happening with this, what do you mean? Kind of the decay of the discourse into Venom, kind of in general. Yeah. It was sort of the, the force that we wanted to, to do whatever we could to, to help counteract. Right. And we're hiring, by the way, I should say. Oh, you are? <laughs> we are. Well, uh, people know where to find you. Well, cool. Well, look, thank you very much for, for taking the time. It's fascinating. And uh, yeah, I wish you luck. Yeah, thank you. And that is all the time we have in 2020. Thank you guys for listening. Again, apologies for my meandering intro. Obviously, this kind of world is something I know a bit more about because it's my world. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. You know, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out as we move into this next phase of life. Dare I say post-COVID, post-Trump, post-ish COVID. But anyhow, in the meantime... Please stay safe, stay sane, subscribe to the pod if you haven't already, tell your friends about it, write a rating and review. Okay, I'm not going to ask anymore. Have a great rest of the year, and we will talk in 2021. Be well. Bye-bye. podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of the times and the sunday times subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash danny in the valley the train is now approaching junction at platform passenger airport please stay on board next stop road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.